0: Welcome to the Shields Outdoors podcast, your source for information on hunting, fishing, and all of your outdoor passions.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to the Shields Outdoors podcast. Today we're going to be talking about hunting and conservation. So those two things really go hand in hand and today I have a public land activist and general conservationist, Sam Soho with us today. So Sam, how's it going?
0: Uh, It's going well, thanks for having me on. Uh, Yeah, yeah, pumped pumped to talk about all the stuff I love to do. Mm -hmm.
1: So for any of the people that follow Sam on social media, you probably have a pretty good idea what we're gonna be talking about today. And um, you know, but for those who who don't know who you are, can you just kind of give yourself a little background, what you're all
0: about? Sure. You know, I grew up in the Dakotas, um, so grew up in South Dakota, uh, went to school in North Dakota and now live in North Dakota, um, and have been a passionate outdoorsman, uh, hunter, fisherman my entire life, uh, and kind of turned that into a career uh, on the photography side of things and began shooting uh, video and photos uh, a little over a decade ago now, and kind of became a a better term than freelance is kind of a permalance, like uh, a photographer, I've been kind of doing that since I graduated college uh, never got a real job and so I just traveled all over the world and shot photos uh, for different companies within the hunting industry or following around different hunting personalities uh, and documenting what they were doing uh, but about four years ago kind of made the transition into more of the conservation side of things uh, you know I had a lot of good role models to look up to uh, guys like Jason Matzinger, Randy Newberg, um, and I knew that I wanted to do more for the hunting industry than just be a photographer. Mm-hmm. And so, just ideas started swirling around, and, and it, it all started with turning an old school bus into a rolling hunting shack, and using that as a giant billboard to raise awareness about public land issues, as well as educate people about how to get involved in conservation and really trying to tell people that it's not as hard as it may seem Uh, and uh, you know actually getting involved in conservation is more than just buying a hunting license or a fishing license uh, and trying to trying to help people get involved so uh, been doing that for four years um, and really trying to talk about public lands as much as possible and try to help people understand our public land system and then on top of that Uh, my brother Josh and I started a company called Public Land Tees as a way to give back to all of the organizations and initiatives that protect all of those uh, public lands and habitat and access for sportsmen and women. And so we started Public Land Tees four years ago, and as of uh, today, we've raised uh, a little over $165,000 to give back to protect those places that we like to spend time.
1: That's really awesome. And, yeah, the... Your bus project was super cool. And <laughs> I, I really didn't think about it that much from like an education standpoint, but it fits so it fits in <laughs> yeah. so well. like <laughs> hey, I'm gonna teach people about conversation, what better way to do it than to tear a bus down
0: <laughs> and, and, and talk about
1: it from a bus. So
0: yeah, I think that was, that was the cool part about it. You know, the, the whole bus concept had started a long time before I bought one. Uh, my older brother owned an Archery Pro shop and backcountry hunting store in Colorado. And had kicked around the idea of buying an old school bus to use it as like a marketing tool for his shop or a you know mobile bow shop or whatever, and uh, where it kind of ended up was we were just joking about buying a bus and using it for like a huge turkey hunting tour, uh, mm-hmm. and, you know throw some bean bags in there or cots and whatever, and then just go travel around and hunt turkeys. Well, that idea kind of just marinated in my head for oh, I was about. Uh, three and a half, four years before I pulled the trigger on buying a school bus and then, uh, yeah, started that transformation process and it seemed like the relatability for everybody that that saw the project uh, like about the school bus everybody's ridden on one yep. and so i think it <clears throat> it really struck a chord with people and made people want to follow along and kind of understand what the whole project was about which was pretty cool
1: mm-hmm. yeah just watching you on social media with you know just your stories or whatever about the development of this bus and what it all stands
0: for is just
1: yeah it's, it is just a whole real cool story in general and then you You'd sort of retired the bus a little bit now and, and worked on a uh, on an ultimate hunting van right now.
0: <laughs> yeah, it uh, you know the, the bus is is great, was great, uh, but it's only sustainable for so long. Like, uh, I I got married. It's nice to be home a little bit more than, uh, you know, being on the road for, like, you know, 60 to 90 days at a time in a school bus.
1: Yeah, it gets the wife a little. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure.
0: So, um, no, it was uh, the the bus did exactly its intended job, which was get a whole bunch of attention uh, pointed in the right direction. And and then Josh and I uh, bought a stock Chevy Express 3500 van. Uh, I drove it out to Pennsylvania and Quigley 4x4 did the four wheel drive conversion, lifted it uh, and then we put 35 inch tires on it and then Josh and I uh, did a whole rebuild on the whole interior of the van and so now it's got uh, you know you, like basically a big sleeping quarter with a divider so the two of us can sleep back there and then we've got a weapons slide out that sits on top of a deck drawer system, it's got a roof rack with solar up there and, and room for cargo and um, but yeah you can I mean a four wheel drive like chevy express you can go anywhere and get really stuck uh, <laughs> if, you, if you want but man like you can you can crawl anywhere with that because the i was skeptical at first but just like the weight distribution of the way the van sits like you can really pick through whatever you want and it's amazing and mud and snow and everything so yeah yeah um, that's awesome and
1: yeah. then you know instead of like staying in a hotel and driving an hour to your first classing point like You can pretty much be right there.
0: Exactly, yeah. I mean, I've used it uh, in antelope season last year. I used it as a glassing knob itself because I was hunting real flat country. And so I just drove out before sunrise and then just hopped up on the van and sat there until the sun came up and then used that as my initial glassing point. Nice. Um, but, but smarter, not harder. That's right. right? Yeah, there exactly. You,
1: you work hard enough when you're out there. <laughs> yeah. You know, so <laughs>
0: yeah. take every bit of
1: advantage you yeah. can.
0: Yeah. But uh, no, the, the van in comparison to the bus is pretty nice. Uh, it's nice to have heat and AC and cruise control. And uh, you can drive the speed limit, <laughs> and so you know all of those things uh, make it a little bit nicer than cruising around in a forty-foot school bus. So
1: yeah, 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 I believe that for sure. Yeah. So um, let's uh, let's dive a little bit into the con- conservation. So you uh, you know like you're kicking off this uh, stamp it forward mm-hmm. project. Can you can you talk to us a little bit about that?
0: Yeah. So when when Josh and I founded Public Land Tees, the entire mission behind it was uh, yes it was a way to make a little bit of money to keep you know the bus on the road uh, keep us out in the field and documenting all of the things that we do but really it was founded with the mission to give back to organizations that help protect public land habitat access all of those things so from day one uh five dollars from every single item we've ever sold we donate back to different projects uh some of those include the false uh yeah false creek project in montana We gave $5,000 to the RMEF, uh, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, uh, which went to helping open up 26,000 acres of public land. Uh, We donated close to $1,500 to the National Wild Turkey Federation uh, to buy sage seedlings, which not only helped uh, turkey populations, but wild sheep, mule deer, um, and everything that lives in that whole region. Um, We've given to pheasants forever, Delta Waterfowl. I mean, at this point, I think we've donated to or worked with and donated to about nine uh, different organizations. That's awesome. So, so yeah. Um, but one of our biggest projects is surrounds the federal duck stamp. So, as um, as we kind of dove into this whole conservation thing and and figuring out ways to give back and really, you know, look at the things that really help uh, sportsmen and women. Uh, one of the best tools for conservation in America, you know, in the United States history is the passage of the migratory bird hunting uh, and yeah, migratory bird hunting and conservation stamp act. And uh, for anybody listening that doesn't know about the duck stamp or has never waterfowl hunted, the duck stamp was passed in 1934, and by law 98% of the purchase price of a duck stamp has to be spent on wetland habitat. So that includes the national refuge system waterfowl production areas, conservation easements, um, basically buying up or leasing more wetlands with 98% of the money spent on federal duck stamps. So Mm -hmm. we started looking at this tool that was already in place. And once you start to learn about all these things, sometimes you understand that it's better to use a tool that already exists and figure out a way to leverage it a little bit different rather than fabricate your own tool. Mm -hmm. So What we came up with was Stamp It Forward, and it's rolling right now, Um, and we started it in 2019, and basically, I had no idea if this would work or not, but I just opened it up and asked people to send us money directly. Uh, We opened it up through Venmo, PayPal, uh, the website, and just asked for people to donate money, and for every single donation of $25, basically every dime that we received, we go out and buy more federal duck stamps. Um, and so in year one, we raised enough money through individuals donating and companies donating and matching our initial donation of 100 stamps. Uh, year one, we bought 1,000 duck stamps, which raised about $25,000 for conservation. Uh, last year was year two. Uh, we bought uh, just shy of 1,600 federal duck stamps, uh, which equated to just shy of $40,000. And right now, uh, we, uh, for year three, we're going pretty strong already um we are at uh 594 stamps and we're really just getting into it um and so the cool part about it though is we we buy all these duck stamps and then we turn one fundraiser into another and we start to give the stamps away with every item we sell on our website uh so we that's going now if anybody goes over to publiclandtees.com and picks up any merchandise you're going to get a duck stamp with the item that you order and because we give $5 from every item we sell back to conservation, it's a way to turn this initial fundraiser of buying duck stamps into yet another fundraiser okay. and raise so it's additional kind money. Of multiplying. Right. Back. Exactly. So, But I think it's important to tell everybody listening that Shields has been a sponsor of this project for two years in a row now. So. Uh, both years, last year and this year, Shields stepped up and has donated uh, $1,750 to the project to help us further our mission and raise more money for wetlands. So mm-hmm. uh, can't thank Shields enough for being part of it and uh, just excited to see where it's all going to go.
1: Yeah, and, you know, we can't thank you enough for just starting this conservation project. You know, that's that's exactly what we're about. We're about, you know, enhancing the habitat and just having it, you know, be a lasting source for people to get out and enjoy.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I, I think that's important for people to understand is, without, you know, companies like Shields uh, stepping up and doing things like that. I mean, literally, it's it is an investment in the future customer, right? So, uh, by protecting these resources that we have and use and love. Uh, you, For future generations, we know that it's just cyclical. Like, you know, the people that are spending time on those lands are going to come shop at Shields. And through that money, you know, like it's and you can multiply it there, too. If somebody, you know, comes in, shops at Shields and buys a gun, that 11 percent of that purchase goes to uh, the Pittman-Robertson Act, which is another conservation fund. So there's it's all interconnected. And as long as we're all working together to help further and protect the future, of habitat access all of these things uh, i think we're never going to see it go away so i think that's kind of the exciting part of all this Mm -hmm. and and it's been fun to just figure out new and creative ways to raise money so we can make sure that stays the case
1: yeah absolutely love that outside the box thinking and just you know giving back to the sport that's you know giving you a chance to work work not in an office job basically. (laughs) Yeah. I mean,
0: like my entire life is surrounded in the outdoors. So anything that I can do to protect it and, you know, keep staying in a, basically a career that allows me to live the way I want to live and, and still pay the bills that I need to pay. Like I, I, I'm super lucky. I mean, I, I'm, I've been blessed beyond belief, uh, in that realm. So,
1: yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of people that aspire to like work in the outdoors. What sort of, uh, what sort of advice would you give to somebody?
0: For that? Yeah I, I wish I could give like really clear advice. I think the best thing to understand is that there's no one like perfect path into the outdoor industry. So the way I got in was getting an internship through a hunting show. So when I was finishing college I uh, basically was just all excited about archery hunting. I had just started that year uh, in 2010 and I had gotten lucky you know beginner's luck i had shot a couple deer within about a week and a half and i just started i always had an interest in film and photography mostly on the video side and uh i just started cold calling cold emailing anyone that i could find a contact info for um and after you know the 70th email or whatever it was i got an email back from bill winky down at midwest whitetail and uh i drove down over christmas break and interviewed And that was kind of my start into the industry. And then I just use networking and and any opportunity to meet more people within the industry as a way to kind of further my career. So there's a lot of different avenues. So if if people listen to this, want to work in the outdoor industry, try to figure out what avenue you want to go down, whether that be creating content like I do, whether that be sales, whether that be conservation, whether that be like Figure out what avenue you want to go down in the space and then just take that first step, whatever it is, whatever it seems like you need to do to start. That, I think that's probably the best advice is to you just have to take a chance and know that more often than not, like nothing's going to come of it. But it's just a numbers game at some point. So (laughs) if if you stay persistent, and you stay persistent, stay in your niche, figure out what you want to do, and just keep moving down that road, I think everyone's going to be able to start to see those doors open. Um, So yeah, that's probably the best advice, just start.
1: Yeah, and definitely not be afraid to hear no.
0: Yeah, because you'll hear no a lot.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that that just kind of comes with hunting in general, whether it's like trying to find new hunting land Mm -hmm. or anything like that, but you know, as long as you're persistent, as long as you stick with it, as long as you're willing to work hard, you know, keep trucking along and good things will happen.
0: Yep, absolutely.
1: So So, yeah, one, you know, one opportunity that came along is, uh, is your recent trip. So you went to Alaska, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, just got back from uh, just under three weeks in Alaska. Um, Had been, I, I I was lucky enough um, a few years back to go up to canada and shoot photos on a couple different moose hunts and had a blast uh you know shot uh, both times i was up there the the people that were hunting shot moose and so was always kind of in the back of my head a bucket list that i you know a hunt that i really wanted to do and so i guess two years ago now was kind of when planted the seed and started to figure out like the logistics of getting up there and originally we were going to drive the van all the way to alaska and then go in and moose hunt and then drive all the way back hopefully with a couple you know with with, with some some paddles on the roof rack right (laughs) and uh and then that little thing called covid happened and so Canada closed so we canceled our trip to Alaska last fall in 2020 and uh just chased you know the normal stuff elk mule deer whitetail um everything last year and then going into this year uh, found a, uh, a pilot, um, Sportsman's Air Service, found a place that would fly us into a drop camp, uh, be able to stay in a little like trapper's cabin, little 10 by 12 shack. Mm-hmm. And uh, the uh, for, for us, it was semi-affordable. And so we, we put together the, the money we needed to to make it happen. And uh, yeah, went up there September 10th, flew into camp on the 12th. And then we hunted all the way from the 12th or yeah starting on the 13th we hunted until the 25th which was the last day of the season so we uh we had 13 days of of hunting up there and you know you don't take a single dry step the entire time you're up there (laughs) it's like walking on a giant sponge Uh, but we had we had a blast um unfortunately or you know however you want to look at it we did not end up shooting uh a bull in 13 days we only saw two bulls which was felt a little slow yeah (laughs) one could call that slow yeah not seeing more than two target animals in
1: 13 days not the best rate
0: no not the best rate you know overall we ended up seeing uh 11 moose total so we saw nine cows and two bulls and uh and just didn't have quite the the uh the rut activity in our area that we were hoping for so uh, we hunted hard every day, you know, hunted um, would basically be just, you know, try to get as much information about what we were doing up there, like for a drop camp moose hunt um, before going up. So we did a lot of like spending time in the same area and calling and, and raking and just trying to like start to bring animals into the area. Um, and we had a few good weather or like, you know, a few good moose hunting weather days early on. And then we had about four days where the temps really warmed up and it was sunshine and you know not a whole lot was moving of anything Um, and then it started to cool back down and we were really excited for like the last you know four or five days of the trip Uh, but that excitement was short-lived because (laughs) nothing ended up uh, stepping out but um, you know had some cool interactions on the fourth day of the trip uh, I was up to bat and had a bull come by about like the last 15 minutes of light and uh, in our unit that we were hunting you have to have it three brows on either one, one side or the other or be 50 inches wide and he basically walked parallel to us for several minutes at you know w- well within shooting range under 250 yards the entire time and basically grunting every single step and just we were trying to you know call at him and grunt at him and try to just like have him look over so he could give yeah. a, give us a better view of uh, of what he was and he he just never never gave us a clear view and just didn't couldn't pick out three brows and could didn't he was right on that borderline of that 50 inch mark so Mm -hmm. unfortunately just had to let him walk off into the darkness and and then uh it was the last day of the hunt we saw had another bull i called the bull in um and he just wasn't quite big enough either so um but you know being able to spend two weeks in the alaskan bush with my brother uh, who i've hunted with my entire life was pretty special. So like on a personal standpoint, like that trip was incredible.
1: Oh yeah. Just a great escape. Like yeah. heading to Alaska, totally off the grid, trying something brand new. That's super cool. And you know, like that trip has me super intrigued. Cause like when I think of bucket list hunts, like, I think it's safe to say my number one bucket list hunt is Alaska moose. Like it's something I really want to try. I've never, I've never done anything even remotely like it. Like how do you, what's your hunting strategy out there? And like, how do you even start?
0: <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, so we we tried to talk to as many people as we knew who had been on moose hunts in the past and just tried to get as much information as we could, you know, calling strategy, calling frequency, uh, depending on the type, time of the year, you know, like, should we be raking more or should we be calling more? Um, so our our general strategy was to get to a spot where we could at least see like uh, a little bit more ground than you know 50 yards in front of you through the bush and little high spots that overlooked you know kind of a long broken meadow or or something like that and then we would you know get out there before first light and and wait and listen and you know hopefully hear a cow talking or a bull grunting or whatever and we'd call uh, you know kind of uh, different frequencies along the the hunt and uh, um, and then we were just basically hoping for something, you know, to catch something crossing through these meadows, like searching for cows and then be able to call to it or, you know, have it start coming, working its way in. Because everything we had had read and watched or whatever, sometimes like a moose will just stand out there for days, even though he hears you calling. And then like eventually he'll just like work his way in one day. So he might be there the whole time and you just never see him come out of the bush. And then one day he'll just, like, be standing where you were calling or whatever. So, um, unfortunately, we didn't have that happen. But uh, we kind of just tried to go based on people that had way more experience than we do and uh, played that game. And I think, you know, through the trip, we felt like we learned a lot um, and just, like – you know, the amount of sign that we should be looking for in areas, like, to know that there's moose, like, really frequenting the area, like, what's heavy moose traffic look like, like, as far as, like, footprints and stuff, and what is, like, light moose traffic look like, so we learned a lot of that type of stuff, so, like, you almost wish at the, you know, day 13, you wish you could just, like, restart with all the knowledge. You all that knowledge (laughs) going
1: into it at day one, and, you know, like, that'll just make your you know your next trip that much easier
0: yeah yeah so already started saving again for (laughs) for the next trip but it'll probably be either 2023 or 2024 before i can get back to alaska and do that again but yeah
1: absolutely you get any fishing in while you were up there too
0: yeah so the lake that we were on uh that we had dropped into actually had pretty good rainbow fishing um it was like just hard enough fishing to make it fun. So you weren't catching something every cast, which we kind of thought it would be because you're on a remote lake, you know, figured yeah. they hadn't been seeing much for, you know, fishing pressure. Um, but it was it was funny, it was like, there had to be a certain temp outside that the water, you know, that the water hit before the fish really started hitting the surface. And when the fish started hitting the surface, we could hop in the canoe and go out. And uh, uh, one of us would have a fly rod and one of us had a spin caster. And then we were, you know, typically we'd catch a couple of fish and then go cook cook fish and potatoes and whatever and then uh, eat that for lunch and then and then go back out hunting but um yeah like at least that broke up the monotony of mm-hmm. uh of not seeing anything uh yeah if yeah. you're
1: doing the exact <laughs> same thing for 13 straight days that can get a little bit tiring. Yeah. <laughs> yeah
0: yeah we did uh one cool experience that we had was on it was it was a rainy morning I think it was day three and uh we were kind of up on this little high spot overlooking this meadow below us and I looked down and I honestly thought it was a cow moose that had stepped out into the opening. And then my brain registered what it was, and it was a gigantic black bear. Like, <laughs> like, like, like I, I mean, I have no idea how heavy or big, like, you know, if you square a black bear, like, you know, mm-hmm. like a lot of guys that shoot, you know, mountain bears or even like stuff in Minnesota, you're looking, you know, six foot bears, like a big bear. Uh, and this was, I mean, I don't know. He was probably six seven hundred pounds i mean it's just gigantic so it was cool to see you know just how big some of those critters get up there um but yeah everything's yeah. bigger yeah up there. <laughs> yeah yeah the, the morning the first morning we started walking around and uh i've been to alaska a few times uh, just on photo trips and stuff and josh my brother was walking around and he was like man i just feel like i've been miniaturized because literally all of the brush up there is at least twice as big as you think it's going to be when you step mm-hmm. foot in it like the so you have you know just like what looks like just regular prairie grass or whatever you know it's really like six feet tall and then all of the alders is you know which would be like buck brush is all like 15 20 feet tall so like all of a sudden you're just like can't see anything can't you know you're walking through yeah. all these giant plants and it's just like a it's a completely different world than anything in the midwest for sure
1: yeah and i suppose that makes things tougher trying to find your target animal too yeah
0: <laughs> yeah it's uh it's thick and if they're not moving you know you're not gonna not gonna pick them up so uh, but yeah again it was a it was a great experience and uh, can't wait to get back to alaska
1: Absolutely. Do you see any other animals like grizzly bears or caribou or anything like that?
0: So we, no, we didn't. We saw one coyote. We saw three black bears, a coyote, and some moose. It was, and it was like, there was hard, it was weird. It was, it was very quiet in general, like not a lot of bird activity. You know, there'd be like a few birds each morning that would, you know, be chirping away. Uh, We had a couple ducks that were like living on the lake that we were on, but it was, it was a very, very quiet place so yeah
1: did you run into any other people when you were
0: up no nope, uh the yeah no didn't see anyone so
1: what is it like to go two weeks without seeing another human oh, it's, your yeah,
0: it's fantastic <laughs> <laughs> I mean you know like and uh, both of us like honestly were like really looking forward to that disconnect mm-hmm. of you know being kind of away from society uh you know and away from like all of the creature comforts, if you will, uh, of standard life just as a way to kind of reset. And, you know, it kind of allows you to like dig into your own head a little bit and, you know, maybe work through some things that you need to while you're out there that you haven't had time to focus on. And um, yeah, it was, it's just, I mean, I would would do that every year for sure. Yeah.
1: Absolutely, just a nice little therapy trip. Absolutely. Yeah, and you you spend too much on it anyways. Couldn't afford the taxidermy bill. Anyway, no, that's
0: right. right. Yeah, so that's, <laughs> yeah. we'll just chalk it up
1: to that. Yeah, you know, yeah. You just, it's just save it, a little extra. It's lucky. And it, the yeah, that's right. And then, then you'll be ready for it. Yeah, next time. Next time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely.
1: So you you do a ton of public land hunting, mm-hmm. correct? Yep. Um. So what what sort of advice do you have out there for people that you know don't have their own land uh, need to need to Public stuff, what are some some good tips?
0: Yeah, um, I think one of the best, you know, the thing that what's really changed my whole way of hunting uh, on public land uh, was the basically utilizing e scouting um, ahead of time, and that has really kind of like shifted my learning curve a lot. Like when I'm going into a new area, so um, I use on X maps all the time. I, I you know i think on x has the ability to go look at how many hours somebody's spending like on the app or on the online one mm-hmm. but i don't ever want them to tell me because, <laughs> yeah. because i mean like basically any spare time that i have uh like leading up to the season i'm always trying to you know think about hunts that are whatever two three hunts down the road and like just always taking inventory in the back of my head to like maybe oh here's a new spot that I need to check out or here's something I should go hang a camera in or here's something I you know like this looks like a good pinch or whatever Um, but utilizing that you know on x maps and e-scouting and then just like that but keeping it simple right so if we're gonna you know if we're talking about deer let's talk about deer hunting you know for e-scouting so deer need three things they need bedding they need food and they need water so most of the time You know like water is not an issue there's there's quite a bit of water you know everywhere once you start to get into stuff even in dry areas you know you were just talking we were talking before the podcast about you going out west and and uh, there was a lot more water than you had anticipated so uh, really you're just looking for for food and cover at that point so i i try to find um, chunks of public that even if the public land doesn't have those three things it might be a transition between those three things so small little chunks that are between an ag field and there might be a little creek that runs through like on the other property, like on the other side of the public. I try to find areas that, you know, if it doesn't have all the things that a deer needs to live on, it's the, like basically the highway between those things that a deer needs. So when I'm, and, and I'll, I'll look at, you know, like it doesn't have to be a giant chunk of public. I think, uh, and, if, and if you do hunt a giant chunk of public, I think you need to be willing to go farther than the next guy. Uh, and that's kind of what it comes down to on that but um it doesn't need to be some sprawling acreage um to uh to get into good hunting so, yeah, the, yeah
1: those little chunks of public they can be kind of some hidden gems because mm-hmm. often you know, like there's generally a lot of people that are hunting public you'll run into you know decent amounts of pressure and you know those smaller ones get overlooked yeah but if you look at it from Uh, like a holistic perspective, like what's around in the whole area. Maybe you can't hunt the egg field or maybe you can't hunt the bedding area, but you know, like this little chunk of public's got a nice little pinch point. Mm -hmm. That's something definitely worth looking at.
0: Yeah, exactly. And uh, you know, there's a, there's a really prolific whitetail hunter, Dan Infault. Uh, He always talks about pressure on public land and he's like, I try not to let it intimidate me. Like basically the way I see it is if I know there's big deer living in that area, all those people that are in the parking lot aren't hunting where those big deer are at. If, if anything, they're pushing them more to the spots that I know they like to live at. So mm-hmm. he's like, sometimes it gives you an advantage. Um, and you know, my brother, Josh, like he's said it many, many times. And uh, I always try to like, cause I, I'll get frustrated sometimes when it seems like there's quite a bit of pressure. Uh, but a lot of times you have hunts work out uh, because of hunting pressure. You know, and like it could go both ways. So it might ruin a hunt. Sure, that'll happen sometimes if somebody you know walks under your tree or walks past you. You know, like comes into the drainage that you're glassing for mule deer, or you know, you call each other in on the elk mountain. Uh, But like sometimes they might you know scent bump something to you, and you know it just sneaks out the back, and all of a sudden it's you know right next to you. So you know, a couple of the or one of the biggest deer that I've ever shot was because there were pheasant hunters in the area. So I like just. I mean total luck uh you know i was in a blind on the edge of a field and had a decoy out and some deer had moved into the field at about a quarter mile from me and some road hunters came down and started shooting pheasants uh to about a mile to the north of me and all of a sudden those deer were sprinting my direction and the doe that the bucks were following uh saw my decoys and she like hammer on the brakes and came right to the decoys and the buck was right behind her and I was able to shoot one so like I've had you know I've been on the receiving end of good luck from other hunting pressure so I you know try not to let I think that's probably you know just try not to let it be get to get to you too much mentally Um, just be willing to pivot if you need to I think that's probably the biggest other biggest thing on public is it everybody can go there so yeah, I think that's, you,
1: that is a great piece of advice for yeah. public land is being willing and able to pivot and have a plan B mm-hmm. and have a plan C and yeah. have a plan D because <laughs> yeah. you just never know what's going to happen out there. And yeah, like my my most recent trip to the Badlands, I was hunting public stuff like a like a fifteen mile by fifteen mile chunk of public, and it was the first time that I'd hunted there. And you know, like I I saw like some road systems that showed up on On X. Like, to me, it didn't appear that I could drive mm-hmm. on them. Yep. So, like, I got as close to, like, the middle of nowhere as I thought I could and then started hunting from there. And then I got, like, 15 minutes into my trip going over a couple of rises, and then all of a sudden I see a group of deer like sprinting over this hill coming at me, I'm like, I am not ready for this. But (laughs) like, thankfully, like none of the deer were target animals. It was just like a bunch of does and small bucks. Mm -hmm. But the one came to like five steps and realized (laughs) who I was and hit the brakes and was like, whoa, what are you doing here? Yeah. But what I'd found out was what I thought was just like a walking trail. It was actually like you could drive on it. So I had a nice conversation with a youth hunter about you know, like what they had seen and things like that. And then I realized like, okay, you can drive on that. So then you just kind of take that information and okay, I can get, I can get down that road a little ways to get to this other chunk that like, I would have had to walk five miles to get to where I went to. Now (laughs) I have to walk one and a half.
0: Right. So it's
1: like just taking all that information. And you know, like another thing you say about pressure is like, I I do a decent amount of, of public land hunting, like, not exclusively, like I've got some like family land mm-hmm. and stuff like that that i'll that I'll like to hunt on and do food plots and whatnot, but like I'll go to these chunks of public and i'll I'll dissect the area, look for the food and water and cover like you're talking, and then one thing i like to do is I'll like to look for pinch points that are like that stand out mm-hmm. you know it's like anybody else can see this stuff, and like if you if you're you know like smart about your hunting you can pick out these areas yeah it's like oh that's a good area so like i know that if i if that's a good area like other people are going to have the same thought process in my head so what i'll like to do is i'll like to find the like close proximity ones Mm -hmm. assuming like the deer have been bumped in that spot enough times like i just know i'm going to avoid that area now so but like similar stuff close so they don't have to alter their patterns all that much but are still like just a less pressured area you know like if you're hunting a big chunk of woods like 200 yards can make a world of difference
0: for sure yeah i was just gonna say it doesn't take much of a shift to make you know like to have a you know a good deer walk by you um and like you know the bigger more mature deer like know where they're in cover you know so like you know sure like like you said if everybody's looking at the same map They go, oh, that's the pinch point. That's where I'm going to hunt. Well, then, you know, that buck is probably, like, using terrain or whatever, like, to stay behind a hill, and he's, like, cutting that oxbow or whatever around the, you know, around that pinch point or whatever, so.
1: You know, like, if you're a mature buck, if you think about it, too, like, it makes sense to be in a spot where you can monitor that area, Mm -hmm. too. Like, this buck's bedded on this knoll in a spot where, like, okay this this slough goes around you're not a normal person is going to walk right there but like he can see it he can Mm -hmm. figure out where the danger's at and know like i'm bedded in this spot and i can watch the danger go by and it doesn't know i'm there like okay i'm 150 yards off of this spot that everyone thinks is good but i'm safe
0: right you know yep exactly and it's it um you know just through, you know, trying to learn more about it, uh, the guys over at the hunting public do a good job, you know, they, they've done some of those, uh, like dissecting people's hunting properties or whatever, and, and uh, you know, they would go out and they would found one buck bed stands out in my mind, the, the buck was bedding in a spot where he could literally watch the hunter leave the house. And so he, you know, the way, the way he was sitting is you could see the farm and you could see when that person was walking out the garage and getting in, you know, hopping on the four wheeler or just, you know, hiking down the trail or whatever, and he could monitor the entire thing. So it's, it's amazing what they'll do to keep themselves safe. And, and in places that have more, you know, human pressure, hunting pressure, uh, they're gonna, they're gonna seek out those areas where they feel safe. So it's, yeah, that's something to keep in mind.
1: Definitely. So what are your thoughts on, wind when it comes to public stuff
0: yeah Uh, basically wind is the only thing I focus on (laughs) okay (laughs) yeah nice Um, yeah I I get a lot of questions about scent control Uh, like you know especially when getting into whitetail season um, and people ask me what I do for you know spray down or scent control or whatever and uh, every once in a while I'll I'll use nose jammer like uh, Mm -hmm. mostly if I'm going back into a spot uh, but almost 100% I just tell people play the wind and forget the rest. Like um, that's just my personal opinion. I think I've always, I do hang and hunts almost every single hunt. Um, I'll almost never hunt the same spot twice because I, I'm i more confident in that first time that you go into a new area than I am going back into an area. Um, I don't, for, for me it seems like it doesn't matter how much you try to do, uh, on the scent control side of things, you're going to leave some scent in there. So your best chance to kill a big deer is that first time you're up the tree. Um, so I, I mean, I also bring things like biscuits and gravy for snacks into the, into the tree. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm probably not the right guy to ask about scent control, but yeah, i I, I, um, I have like five different apps on my phone so I can map the wind and like try to figure out which one's actually correct and um you know it's still wrong quite a bit of the time but Mm uh you know there's a couple different apps where you can actually watch like the general wind pattern um and I use that a lot um and so I know like okay like the wind you know like that weather station is calling for a northwest wind but on the wind map it there's a break in that you know pattern of wind like on this line and like it's you know just far enough east of that weather station where it's not picking it up or whatever like on the you know the forecast so um but yeah i i'll i'll try to approach you know places i'm gonna hunt with the wind in my face as best i can or a crosswind and then i'm just you know definitely playing the wind as much as i can
1: yeah absolutely yeah and it you know you can't be afraid to hunt those crosswinds too because like when you think about it like how many times have you seen a fully mature buck like walk without the wind in his favor like, yeah it doesn't yeah. happen it, yeah unless often. he unless
0: he's followed like nose on a doe like it doesn't happen <laughs> so mm-hmm. um but yeah the crosswind game uh can be really good because a lot of times you know or or if you can find a spot where there's a, a running creek or whatever you know in the you know if you have calm wind uh in the morning the thermals are going to pull your scent down that creek and so uh you know thermals are another thing that people should learn about so you can kind of like play with the wind a little bit, Um, you know, or being, you know, if if, if you're going to have a strong wind, if you can get high enough up in the tree where you're going to blow your scent over the top, you know, I do a lot of, uh, I try to find spots to hunt where I can get into a tree that's like maybe on the edge of like a little bit smaller high spot and that's going to push my wind. You know, I've, I've shot deer that were technically downwind of me but it's because I was 25 feet up in the tree mm-hmm. uh, and it was pushing my wind over the top of the trail that the deer were walking on. So there's some things that you can learn as you go you know, through time, but like, most people just focus on like, keeping that wind in your face or you know, yep. at, the, at the least a crosswind of yeah. where you think the deer are coming from.
1: The, the more you learn, the more you learn to like, push the boundaries Right. that. Like, you, can, you can absolutely never beat the wind. No, You know, like, no. if a deer is directly downwind of you, like, the gig is up. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I mean, that reminds me of, like, my last Badlands hunt, too, because I was hunting with uh, Aaron Escabel of North Prairie Life. We shot some video on that yep. podcast. And our first stock, like, we, you know, like, I, I went down that two-track and found, like, a camp in a good spot where, like, I wake up and we can start hunting. Yep. And we were, like, 20 minutes or half an hour into it, and we found our first buck. Like it was, it was a really nice three by three tall, mm-hmm. still in velvet, which was kind of weird. Yeah. Um. But he was in this spot where, like, so the wind was perfect in our favor when we went up, to, like, and found him. So we found him at like five hundred yards, and he was on the bottom of this steep cliff. So like, and we look in between me, in between us and the deer. It's like there's no way we can get to this guy. Like he, sure. he will pick us out. Yeah. But you look at that cliff, and it's like that's. 40 30 feet mm-hmm. and you know like with the wind blowing hard like it's gonna go right over the top so right. I was like all right let's just <laughs> loop around them let's go over the top let's see if we make this happen and and Aaron went after it and I was sitting there filming watching the whole thing I could like give him a hand signal yep it was right or left he needed to go and he got to like 15 yards away from this deer like right on top of him yep and yet wind was perfect like it it just blew right over him but unfortunately the brush was too thick he tucked in far enough like he just couldn't couldn't see him so like looking back i was like well i'm at 500 yards i should have just stood up and like waved my hands around to get him to stand up or something but it's like (laughs) it's kind of that hindsight's 2020 thing Mm -hmm. but yeah it's just like surveying what's around you and just like figuring out how, how to find that fine line between getting your opportunity and not getting busted.
0: Right. For sure. Yeah.
1: Just <laughs> what makes that so fun.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and I think, you know, when it comes to mule deer, I think one of the best things that I've learned, um, over the years is I like early on in my spot and stock career, you, if you want to call it that, uh, I, I always tried to push in too hard, like, or too far, you know, like, I always felt like I needed to be like, oh, I could get to that bush or, oh, I could get to this or, you know, like I can use the train to get to here. And so I would end up 15 yards from a deer, you know, which is like you're too close. Like if they're yeah. bedded down, like you most of the time you're too close. So um, uh, and, and I learned it from a kind of a buddy hunting mentor of mine. But basically what, what I watched him do all the time was he would find a deer, uh, bed it, and then he would come back and check on it again. Because a lot of times deer will bed down in the morning. And then they'll get up and feed for like 15, 20 minutes, and then they'll find their like rest of the day bed where they're gonna like settle in. So what he would do is put it to bed, like you know, get it into where it's really settled in, and then go in early afternoon and get to 60 or 70 yards and sit down. And then and that was it. And so his whole mentality was, well, the deer's either gonna stand up and feed my direction, and I can shoot him when he gets to forty or he's gonna, I'm in a spot where if he stands up and works the other way, I can use the terrain to like move in on him while he's busy feeding and like, you know, distracted. So, but I watched it work over and over and over again. And so I started to just like use that as one of my hunting tactics. And it's amazing how big of a difference that has made where I'm not trying to push in so close, you know, and and thinking back on deer, where if I would have just sat down and just, you know, like. Who cares if it takes nine hours? You know, that deer's going to stand up at some point. Yeah. Uh, I just wish I could go back for some of those deer. Oh, and I, I'm
1: the same way on that, too. Like, if, if I'm bumping a deer or if something doesn't happen, nine times out of ten, it's because I was too aggressive. Mm-hmm. Yep. For sure. You know, like, it's it's hard, though. Like, you get to that, you know, just out of effective range, just sit there and camp on a deer for two, four, six hours. Mm-hmm. Like, he's right there. I yeah. just want to shoot him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: Um, yeah, last year, uh, um, I snuck in on a deer and this one, it, I, I used that tactic, but I ended up being closer than I wanted to be. Um, it was blowing 35 miles an hour and the, where he was bedded, like, you know, total line distance wise, I was only like 15 yards from him, which is way closer than I wanted to be. But it was as close. It was where I had to be to stay out of the shadow, like that he would see mm-hmm. above and uh, the wind was blowing hard enough that like I thought that it, when he stood up to start, you know, moving around, I'd be able to get a shot. So I sat on him for like four hours uh, and he stood up once and then just rebedded in the same bed. You know, it was it, the sun. It was in full sunshine, which typically they'll bed in the shade. Um, but the wind was blowing so hard that he was staying cool, just like laying up against the clay, you know, bank or whatever. So he was just out there suntanning, like in the wind, (laughs) in the wind,
1: (laughs) just having himself. Yeah,
0: just great. And then, uh, um, my brother was with me and I kind of snuck back around this little knob, and I, you know, like quietly was like, well, he stood up once and then he just bedded back down and he kind of motioned to me. He's like, you want me to throw a rock, like try to, you know, try to throw a rock over and try to get him to stand up. Like, you know, if we blow him out, well, unfortunate, but like, you know, at least maybe he'll actually get up. Because at this point, it was like kind of getting to that point in the day where he either needed to stand up or we needed to leave. <laughs> so, yeah. so Josh sneaks down behind me. I uh, snuck down in, like, one more. There was, like, these deer beds that I was standing in, and I snuck down one more just to, like, be in a spot where I could shoot both directions. And uh, so I got ready. I came to full draw. Josh picked up a rock and threw it. Well, it was kind of like this long, I don't know, six or seven-inch long rock, but it was kind of flat. It was like a—and he (laughs) lofts this rock trying to throw it over the top of the deer. Well, the wind catches it and we're not a hundred percent sure but we're almost sure that he like that he hit the deer with the <laughs> rock because you know most of the time if there's some disturbance nearby like the buck will just stand up look around try to figure out what's going on mm-hmm. Uh know that deer shot out of his bed like well like he'd been hit by a rock <laughs> yeah. so so this deer jumps out of his bed and basically runs around the knob that i'm standing on and like Ben stops at about 35 yards and like trying to figure out what was going on. And I was at full draw. So I was just, you know, it was kind of like following him, like, you know, and then he came to a stop and I shot and then I hit him and he, uh, I thought he was just going to tip over on his back. And it was And uh, he caught his feet and he sprinted downhill and like tried to jump this little drainage in the bottom, um, but couldn't. And he hit the other side of the drainage so hard he broke his right right antler off. <laughs> so so. Um, but yeah, that was, you know, it was one of those experiences where like my whole goal was just to get within shooting range and then sit down. But the terrain allowed me to mm-hmm. move, you know, in a little bit closer and the wind, covered my sound. So I was able to, you know, stand right yep. there and and make it happen. But yeah,
1: just comes back to being able to pivot. Right. Right.
0: Exactly. Yep. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, yeah.
1: you know, that's some great public land information. Talk a little bit about your Alaska trip and, you know, Stamp It Forward project. So for people that want to uh, to donate, how do mm-hmm. they do that now?
0: Yeah, so we have a few different ways you can donate to Stamp It Forward. Uh, you can do it right on our website at publiclandtees.com. Uh, It's the first item on the page. It says Stamp It Forward donation, Uh, and if you go on there, it's $25. You can buy as many as you want, and with all of the money, we'll go buy more duck stamps. And then if you pick up anything else on the website, we'll ship you a stamp with the item as long as we have more stamps coming in. So what we're really doing is encouraging people, if they go to our website, to... Uh, make a donation and buy an item so they're still going to get a duck stamp but they're paying it forward you know kind of the whole stamp it forward concept behind this Mm -hmm. uh, to pay it forward to the next person who might be going to the website to to get a stamp and uh, really the whole goal is just to see how many more stamps we can buy for the program and, and infuse money back into wetland habitat so Perfect. Yeah.
1: Everyone wins. That's right. So, yeah, we'll uh, we'll link those in the in the description of this podcast. Perfect. So people don't have to remember that. You can just go yeah. right down <laughs> to the bottom and click right there. So you will be good to go. Yeah. All right. Well, Sam, thank you so much for your time. And, uh, you know, best of luck with your Stamp It Forward project and, uh, and the rest of your tags this season.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me on. And uh, just looking forward to staying in touch and seeing how you do as well. All right. Perfect.
1: You just heard our conversation with public land hunter and activist Sam Soholt. Now, he's got a really great cause going on right now with the Stamp It Forward project. And if you can, we highly encourage you to donate to that cause. You can go to Public Land Tease, get a get yourself a shirt or a hat and a duck stamp, or you know feel free to just donate as well. Shields has already stepped on that train with a donation, and uh, we're really excited to see where that goes going forward. And with that, we want to thank you all for listening, and see you next time.